0: Well, welcome to week three of our series as we're looking at the 12 disciples that Jesus originally called and, and specifically looking at the transformation that happened in them from the time that he called them to start following him up until the time in which he gave them the Great Commission. And, and that change that took place it happened through a few things. If, if you read through the Gospels, you'll see that some common encounters happen, such as there's, there's a series of miracles that had an impact upon them. There are parables that Jesus taught through that he was able to reveal new truths to them. Even we would find some old concepts and he would give a new teaching on them to, to sort of enlighten and redefine some of the understandings that some of the disciples had. But if you look at the Gospels, you'll see that there's one other really important strategy, key strategy that Jesus used. And that was the use of questions. Questions can be extremely powerful. Now, some questions that we find Jesus asked, or that perhaps we even ask in our own lives, are bound to a very specific situation or a very specific context. For example, if I asked you what time it is, that's very specific to a a moment in a situation in time. If I were to ask you, what are you doing right now, it is bound to a situation and bound to a context in time. If I were to say, how fast was I driving, officer, that's bound to a situation in time, and how much is that going to cost me, officer, is another situational question some of us may have found ourselves asking. But other questions are just part of everyday life. Some questions are not quite that bound to time and situation, and in fact, come up in various situations in different contexts that we find ourselves. One such question is one we're going to look at today that Jesus asked. He asked it a couple of times. And the question being... What do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? Now, in our own lives, you've probably heard that question spoken to you or to somebody else. Perhaps you've even said something of that manner to somebody in a situation you found yourself in. For example, if you're a manager at work and you have some employees under you and you have an employee that has a very high workload, you may come to them with a helpful tone and say, Well, what do you want me to do for you? How can I assist you is the inherent nature of that question. Or perhaps you uh, you have a friend and you've been in a dispute or there's a conflict between you and a friend. And as this misunderstanding turns to anger, it can lead to a, what do you want me to do for you? And there's this anger that comes through. Or perhaps you've walked into a restaurant or into a retail store and you hear a variation of this question. But it's essentially the same question when when the customer service person asks you, well, how may I help you? Same question, just, just slightly reworded, but the same inherent question. But as common as a question like this is, at the root of it, it's a defining question. See, at the root of it, it's it's a defining question. And as ordinary as it may seem, when a question like that is placed in the hands of a masterful teacher or a coach or a mentor, perhaps somebody like Jesus, it becomes profound. It becomes very thought-provoking. And it has the power, actually, to redefine. And as we'll see... In the passage we're going to look at today in Mark chapter 10, it has the power to redefine things such as, what is our view of Jesus? What is our understanding of the nature of our relationship with him? And how does that impact the way that I live my life in this world, the things that I pursue, the way that I relate to other people? It's a very powerful, profound question in the hands of a masterful teacher such as Jesus. Now, Jesus asked this question more than once. And each time he asked it in a very different situation with a very different outcome. The first time was when he was asking the question in response to a conversation that James and James's brother John had been having one day. Now, James and John, these guys were given the nickname by Jesus, Sons of Thunder, which is thought to be a reference to the character they had. They're thought to be men who were bold, with strong faith and, and a great passion but also perhaps a little hot-headed at times. For example, when Jesus and his disciples were walking towards Jerusalem and they had to pass through an area of Samaria and they needed a place to lodge for the night and and this town in Samaria did not receive them and and rejected them and pushed them out. And so James, bold, strong, perhaps hot-headed, says, Jesus, should I call down fire upon this town and destroy them? (laughs) Now, Bold that he even thought he had the faith to do that. That's fantastic. But perhaps a little extreme for the, uh, for the offense that they had caused. Now, next week, we're going to talk about John. We're going to talk about James' brother, John, next week. But today, I want to tell you a little bit about James. Now, you may be wondering, well, which James? Because if you know the names of the disciples, you know that actually there were two guys that Jesus called named James to follow him. And they're referred to as James the Greater and James the Lesser. Today we're going to talk about James the Greater. We'll talk about James the Lesser in a few weeks, and probably the complex that developed from being referred to as James the Lesser all the time. But we're going to focus on James the Greater today. Now James, just like the people we looked at so far, just like Peter and Andrew, James was a fisherman, along with his brother and along with his father. And he had the privilege of being a very close friend of Jesus. He was part of that inner circle, that inner three with Peter, James, and John, who are the inner three who are among the first that were initially called by Jesus, but also had the privilege of experiencing exclusive events in Jesus' ministry. Now, the most unique thing about James the Greater, though, is that he is the only disciple whose death is actually recorded in Scripture. You know, all the other disciples, we, we have legends or we have you know, other writings of the time that let us know how they died. But only James the Greater actually is recorded, his death is recorded in Scripture. We find that in Acts chapter 12, verses 1 to 2. And it's at a time about 10 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, and about 10 years of ministry has been taking place with the disciples following that. And King Herod is in a season of persecuting and arresting Christians in part to appease some of the Jewish leaders who are still fighting against this movement that has grown up. Now among a group who was arrested one time is James the Greater. And he's arrested, and we're told in Acts 12, verses 1 and 2, that he was sentenced to be executed and that he was beheaded. Now even though he had one of the shorter apostolic ministries, his reach is extremely broad. You see, James is, is known and revered as far away as Spain, for example, which is quite a long distance from, from Jerusalem, as far away as Spain. <clears throat> Excuse me. And it's believed, there, there's a, a cathedral there where it's believed that some of the relics of St. James exist, uh, the Cathedral of Santiago de Compostela. Now, beginning in the ninth century, along with this cathedral as a destination, began a very famous major Christian pilgrimage that's referred to as the Camino de Santiago. Has anyone heard of the Camino before? Is that a familiar thought? idea? So the Camino de Santiago, for who hasn't heard of that, started in the 9th century, and it's this Christian pilgrimage where, where people would come, and there's various starting points, and some of the starting points are as far as about 600 kilometers away from the cathedral. And it's a journey from that starting point towards this cathedral in Santiago. Now, in 2016, just last year, there was over 275,000 people in that year alone who made this journey. It's become an extremely major pilgrimage for the Christian faith, for people of the Christian faith. And it's it's a time of reflection. It's a time of sharing of charity amongst the fellow travelers. Uh, A time of removal of baggage, if you will, whether that be emotional, relational, spiritual, even physical baggage as you journey along this trail. But If you listen to testimonies of those who have done it, they they quite often start with these very large, heavy packs of all the things they think they're going to need. And then as they journey along the trail, they usually arrive at the cathedral with the clothes on their back and a walking stick as they have physically, symbolically shed much of the things that they were carrying with them at the start of the journey. Now, I suspect that there are many of these pilgrims who, who make this walk, who hear on a regular basis from the locals in Spain the clarifying question I began with. That clarifying question of, what do you want me to do for you? Because, you see, the locals have food and they have services and they have goods that these sojourners need. And and it makes sense that as they want to encourage them and help them and even keep their own markets open, that they would ask that question to those who are walking, to these hungry, tired travelers. Well, when we first encountered Jesus' use of this question, he too was on a journey. He's on a journey towards Jerusalem, along with all of his disciples and the crowds that are following him. This is the last time he'll be heading to Jerusalem. And this is the moment shortly where he will be arrested, he will be tried, and crucified. But as he walks along the way, as he walks along this journey with his disciples, James and John have been having a conversation. And this conversation has reached a point where they now have a burning question that they have to ask Jesus. So, in Mark gospel of mark chapter 10 verse 35 is where we pick up the story you see Jesus' ministry will soon be over and he's on this final stretch towards jerusalem and as he is heading closer the crowds continue to gather because they're not just following jesus but there are multitudes who themselves are trying to make it to jerusalem for their own reasons so they they tend to pack together and join together in this large mass of people that's moving down the road towards the holy city in jerusalem so Jesus and the disciples and the multitudes are walking. But, but James and John are, are walking shoulder to shoulder and have a bit of a conversation amongst themselves. And, and it reaches the point in this conversation where they decide, well, we got to we got to run ahead and catch up to Jesus who's leading the way because we have a question for him. And so they do, and they, they say, Teacher, uh, Jesus, we want you to do whatever we ask. How does that sound? <laughs> Which, side note, don't start a conversation that way. Because you don't need to be a teacher, a parent, a manager, a youth leader, very long, before you realize, I'm not going to grant that request. I'm not going to do whatever you want. Because it just, it just reeks of suspicion. You know, there's probably a scheme or something underneath behind that question that's being asked. But, but Jesus is not about to just blindly agree. But he does choose to engage James and John in what they're seeking. And so, and so he asks them the defining question. In response to them, he says, Well, what do you want me to do for you? So, so one of them says, Well, well, now you can choose Jesus. It's totally up to you. But but here's what we we're thinking. What if uh what if you know you let one of us one of us sit at your left hand and, and one of us sit at your right hand when you come into your glory? How would that sound? And And so we have to imagine how bold of a statement that is. When you come to your glory, how about you let one of us sit at your left and one of us sit at your right hand? You you can choose who. You can choose who it's going to be. And and so Jesus chooses to graciously respond. He goes, I don't think you guys actually know what you're asking. You guys know what you're asking for? He says, do do you really believe that you can drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Do you think you are capable of being baptized with the baptism I'm about to endure? What's the response? Absolutely we can. Absolutely. Just, just, just let us sit at your left and your right, and absolutely we can do that. So Jesus, again, with grace, says, well, you know, you actually guys are right. The day will come when you will drink the cup that I drink, and, and you will be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. But, but to sit at my left and right, that's that's not for me to grant, he says. He says, those places belong to those for whom they've been prepared. Now, do you see the power of the defining question? Because it was successful in its purpose. It was very successful in its purpose because it not only revealed the request that was behind their initial question they asked, it not only revealed that core request, but it also revealed their definition of who they saw Jesus to be. It revealed their definition of what a follower's pursuits should be, what advantages a person has by being a follower of Jesus Christ. You see, their motive was inherently selfish. They knew something big was coming, and they were conspiring to capitalize upon it. In essence, what they are asking with that request of Jesus is they are asking to sit as crown princes in the new age that they believed was about to appear. And and it's reasonable if you think about it, because these guys, they're on the front lines. They are the front line disciples along with Jesus Christ for these past three and a half years. And of course, when he gets exalted, when he comes to power, well, it just seems natural that his closest friends as, w- as well would have some sense of special privilege. And besides, there's competition for those top seats. Like, they were among the first called, but so was Peter. And, and we all know Peter. It's just a matter of time until he asks. And so we've got to beat him to the punch. We've got to get on this thing if we're going to claim these seats for ourselves. Now, they were partially correct. They were partially correct that the time is coming when, when the Messiah was to usher in a new age. There was a time coming when Jesus would be exalted in glory. But what they didn't understand is how that was going to happen. What they didn't understand is that the road ahead of them was paved with violence and suffering and chastisement and ultimately would end in death. That's different than what they had in mind. What they had in mind was more of how the world seeks greatness. What they had in mind was more of the way that the world looks towards power. And so Jesus, trying to explain this to them, uses some very familiar metaphors to people who would have an Old Testament background. He refers to a cup he's about to drink, which was a common metaphor in the Old Testament for for suffering, for for God's judgment being poured out upon the disobedient. He speaks of baptism. Again, a metaphor of being immersed in something. But in this case, being immersed in the calamity that he was about to be plunged into when he arrived in Jerusalem. So he's asking them, can you guys stand with me in the midst of that? I think he already knew the answer because we too, having the Gospels that we can read, know that it would not be long until they would all abandon him, until some would betray him. And that he was right. They indeed were not able at that time to endure the cup and the baptism that Jesus was destined for. Now perhaps they thought this was a private conversation that was going on. But in fact, the other disciples knew about it and overheard what was happening. And as you can imagine by the nature of that request, they were ticked. They were ticked that these guys would ask such a thing of Jesus. And so as we pick up the story in verse 42, Jesus calls them all together. He wants to calm down the tension that's risen up amongst them now. He wants to calm them down, so he, so he sits them down. And he begins to teach them, as he had done so many times before. And as he teaches them, he wants to, impart, help them to redefine their perspectives on these things. And so he says to them, He says, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord that over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. But not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, at first, we may want to give the other disciples some credit. We may want to give them credit for their outrage at James and John. How could those guys ask such an insensitive question of Jesus? How? Imagine the nerve of those guys. Just because they were called first, they think that they can disclaim those first thrones. I wish I could tell you that's what was going on. I wish I could tell you something as noble as that, as an outrage such as that was taking place but that's not actually the case because he just a short time before this they were all having this conversation they were all discussing who was the greatest which one of them was the greatest especially when it came to the to the future kingdom that was coming this discussion between James and John was simply round two with a more exclusive group around them now and so I think their outrage was more that these guys were conspiring without them as opposed to the fact that they were actually conspiring because the issue at hand is the definition of greatness and the issue at hand is the motive and the nature by which we pursue that. You see, in their shame, honor society in which they lived, the pursuit of greatness and the pursuit of status was, was a natural goal. And it was presumed that everybody was motivated by this and everybody was seeking after it. And it's still alive today. I don't have to talk very much um, before you would all agree with me that as we look at the society in the world today, that this is still a primary drive that many people have. This drive for greatness, for status, for power. I need to have more than him. I need to be better than her. I need to have the best. I need to be on the top rung of the ladder. These types of things are the common ambitions that we see existing in much of the world in which we live today. Now, Jesus is not saying in here that greatness is a sin. He's not saying that these are things that we should not pursue. But what he is saying is that it needs to be redefined we need to redefine our understanding of it and we need to redefine the reason and the motives under which we pursue it. And so he does that by drawing their attention to the Gentiles, the rulers of the Gentiles who were very familiar to them. This was essentially Rome who was controlling the region in which the disciples lived and worked. And he reminds them of what type of leadership these guys exercised. He reminded them that these Roman rulers tended to, tended to puff themselves up and, and kind of throw their weight around. That they tended to lord themselves over other people and attempt to dominate, and attempt to control with an iron fist. And perhaps you've heard the saying, uh, "You know, power corrupts." Absolutely, and and sometimes even a small amount of power. Maybe you've seen this in your own life, where a person at work gets a promotion, or somebody on the sports team gets an MVP award for playing ball hockey on Saturday, or perhaps um, it was Ryan yesterday. So be careful, Ryan. Power corrupts. Right? Or you get your 15 minutes of fame. And all of a sudden, something changes. Something's different within them. Well, this isn't actually a surprise, and this is actually quite natural to us. Because neuroscientists at Sir Wilfrid Laurier University, here's our Canadian content for the day, at that university did research into this and the, into the effects that power has upon how the brain operates. And, and the research they found was actually fascinating just a couple years ago. And, and here's what they found. Here's the, here's the, the summary of, of, their, of their research. They found that people have this natural tendency to do what's called mirroring. Okay, We tend to mirror each other because it helps us to get into another person's head or to to empathize with them. And here's what mirroring looks like. Have you ever been sitting across from somebody and they have their legs crossed so you cross your legs? Or they're sitting like this so you sit like this? Or they're nodding their head so you start nodding your head? That's mirroring. We we tend to mimic what the other person is doing. It shows a sense of relationship, a sense of connection, a sense that we're empathizing what the other person's talking about but it goes beyond to some of these social constructs. You see, when, they, when these neuroscientists watched the neurons that fire in the brain, they had somebody squeeze a ball, and they could measure what was firing in the brain as they squeezed the ball. But then they watched a person watch a person squeeze a ball. And even the person was sitting there, just watching another squeeze the ball, the same neurons would fire. That's why when you sit there watching sports on TV, for example, if you're watching soccer, which isn't really a sport, but if you're watching soccer, I know, taking a shot at soccer, so, football, that's good. so if you're watching soccer, we'll just use it for example today, and if you're really enthralled in the game and you see them try and kick for a goal and your leg twitches, you're mirroring. If you're watching boxing and your arm twitches, you're mirroring. This, this is a natural thing that happens within our bodies. And so we see it in social situations, we see it in involuntary situations of what we're watching. We mirror people. Here's the research they found. They found that when they took a person that had a sense of power, a sense of authority over another, those signals diminished. Their ability to emphasize went down, and those neurons unconsciously stopped firing the same way. Here's the conclusions of the research. The conclusion is this, that when power goes to your head, it shuts down your heart. When power goes to your head, it shuts down your heart. This is the example that Jesus lifts up for them. You know those Gentile rulers who are exercising that authority over you? Perhaps their hearts have been shut down. That's the example he uses for them. But he contrasts that. He contrasts it with another example. And Jesus seeks to redefine this form of how they operate in the world and how they relate to one another. He says, rather than seeking power and prestige and status over others, we're called to be servants under others. That's what he's calling us to. And we may cringe at that because that's a message that the world doesn't like, this idea of, of having to serve and be a servant. That's different. The world's message is get ahead, climb that ladder. Our society doesn't like the thought of servanthood. Servanthood equals weakness to be avoided that's not to be pursued but the reality of it is this that in god's economy it's different than the world's economy you see in god's economy the model of status and self-esteem has been reversed and throughout jesus's ministry throughout his teaching he has been completely consistent on this point if you look at the words of jesus his teachings throughout his gospels you'll see that he says blessed are the poor Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the persecuted. He says, the first shall be last. The greatest shall be your servant. The first shall be a slave. That is the economy of the kingdom of heaven that he has been explaining and trying to help redefine for those who are following him. Now, the life of a follower is to be characterized by humility and service, notice what he is not saying. He is not consigning his followers to last place. He's not consigning them to slavery and oppression. He's also not saying that you shouldn't have leaders over you. He's not saying you shouldn't submit to leaders that are over you either. That is not part of the message. What he is saying is that in God's kingdom, the way to the top in God's kingdom, the measure of greatness from God's economy is through humble service to one another, through love. And there's no better example than Jesus Christ himself, who came to be a servant. More accurately, he came to be the servant He came to be the epitome of servanthood that leads to exaltation. And he did so by his sacrificial death that paid the price for all of our sins upon the cross. He did so through his resurrection as he was exalted to the highest and that through those acts that he could ransom all of those who had placed their trust and their faith in him. And Paul beautifully picks up on all of these themes in one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture found in Philippians 2, which we read earlier in in the service today that beautifully portrays that Jesus' redefinition and example of greatness. Where it talks about how Jesus was one with God in heaven, one with the Father in heaven. But he didn't consider that to be something for his own gain. He didn't look at that as something for his own advantage to be grasped and clung to, but rather he willingly made himself the very nature, the very epitome of a human servant. But then he further humbled himself beyond that. Because being found in that form, he allowed himself to further be mistreated, to be humiliated, eventually to be nailed to a cross. And because of this, because of this, God lifted him to the highest highs and gave him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth. And under the earth and every tongue today or one day will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. You see, the greatest person who ever lived was a humble servant. A humble servant who got so low that he could lift up anyone. So no matter what you have done, no matter the level of guilt you may bear, no matter the amount of shame you may have, No matter how much sin has existed in your past, no matter how low you may feel, Jesus got lower. Why? Because he wants to lift you up. He paid the price for it so that he could lift you up. This is the example of greatness that not only defines the worldview on how we are to live and exist with other people within the church and within the world, but it also can help to redefine our hearts that we may have eyes to see those who are forgotten by society. It helps to redefine our passions so that we're not solely seeking after things for the self, but rather we see the edification of the greater body, that we see the advancement of not just ourselves, but the advancement of others within the body. It redefines our motives where we are not seeking greatness for ourselves, but rather understand greatness from an eternal perspective and from the example and the teachings that we are left from Jesus Christ. So this definition of greatness is in stark contrast to what James and John of Jesus Christ. They saw him as their ride to the top. But now, he sat them down, he's calmed them down. He's taught them and helped to redefine their understanding of these things. And so he stands up and they continue on their journey, but he's not done. He's not done teaching because there's actually one more encounter he wants them to have before he's finished with his lesson. Because as they keep walking, they find themselves along with a multitude coming to the town of Jericho. And as they pass through Jericho and get to the outskirts they come across a blind man. Now we're not told much about this man except that his name is Bartimaeus and that he's blind on the outskirts of the city begging. Just hoping, not knowing even the faces of who walks by, just hearing the sounds of them shuffle by and the sounds of their discussion, hoping to hear the sound of a of a coin fall in his cup. And that's where he sits and spends his days. And as he listens to the people pass by, as he calls out, asking for someone to drop a coin, he hears someone talk and say the name Jesus. Now he's heard of Jesus. He's heard stories of Jesus. He's heard about who this man just may be and, and he's filled with hope and anticipation. And so in desperation, not even sure if Jesus is right there yet, just in desperation he calls out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now those who are walking by happen to be with Jesus, but they crowd tries to silence him. They're thinking, what would Jesus want with a blind beggar? And so they push him down, and they go, just be quiet. He wants nothing to do with you. But Bartimaeus will not be deterred. So he says even louder, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And hearing that humble cry for help, Jesus stops, and he calls Bartimaeus to himself. And now the crowd who used to keep him pushed down. He's trying to help him up, but he doesn't want their help now. He doesn't need their help. He jumps to his feet. He comes over to where Jesus' voice was, and he falls at his knees. And as he falls at his knees, Jesus says to him, what do you want me to do for you? There it is again. It's that question again. That same defining question that was asked of James and John just earlier in the day. This forks his Bartimaeus to consider things like he was not thinking the exact words, this idea of who is Jesus and and, and what do I want from him? What are my motivations? What are my pursuits? How do I answer that question? Now Bartimaeus, by sheerly calling out and saying, Teacher, you are the son of David. Have mercy on me. Even in that statement, he's revealing what's in his heart, that he sees Jesus as God's agent of restoration. He knows that Jesus can grant him the mercy he's seeking. So he only needs a second. He only needs a second to respond. And he simply says to Jesus, Rabbi, teacher, I I just want to see. He makes no claims for himself. He seeks no special privilege. He asks for no lofty place of power. He simply wants to see. He wants to be made whole. And Jesus says, Bartimaeus, your faith has healed you. Receive your sight. And instantly, his eyes are opened as he jumps up and he grabs his mat and he starts following Jesus down the road as they continue towards Jerusalem. And he's he's jumping and praising and telling everybody who will listen the goodness of God exercised through Jesus. And standing there, amidst the crowd, amidst the commotion, are the disciples. Who have just witnessed all this transpire. In particular, James and John who are asked that exact same question. What do you want me to do for you? The disciples asked to sit on thrones with Jesus. Bartimaeus sits in dust and seeks no glory. The disciples saw Jesus as the Messiah who would bring them to positions of glory. Bartimaeus humbly cries out for mercy, humbly just seeks to be restored and made whole. See, I don't think Jesus came to grant worldly power and worldly glory as the disciples were seeking that day. But I do believe he comes to heal. I do believe he comes to restore and to make us whole. So I imagine the disciples had their view of Jesus redefined that day, their relationship with him, and a new definition of what it means to be great in terms of God's kingdom. But what about us? After considering the contrasting stories here between James and Bartimaeus, what difference does that make in our lives? As as in a few moments, we'll prepare to leave this place and go back into the world. What if God were to ask you that question? What do you want me to do for you? How would you answer You know, it's a tough question, but it's meant to be tough. It's it's a defining question. It's a revealing question. And sometimes it can feel like that question is is like a mirror that we're looking at ourselves in as we consider how we would answer. And it can be uncomfortable. It it can be like when you have a bad hair day and you're self-conscious and you want to avoid all the mirrors. Or perhaps on a good day, you're, you're feeling good about yourself. It can be an enjoyable answer. And you just, you don't miss any mirrors. You want to look at them because it's a reminder of where things are at with you in your relationship. But how do you answer that question? Remember, it's a defining question, or or rather, it's a redefining question, I think. Because it's intended to seek out the truth about how we view Jesus, practically speaking, and how we view our relationship with him and the motivation that exists within our hearts in that matter. Now, if you do not yet know Jesus as your Savior, if you don't know him in this sense with this relationship, Perhaps there's a void in your life that you just never seem able to fill. That you're seeking after what the world says you should be seeking. The way the world says you should be seeking it. And yet, it just never seems to fill you up. The void continues. If that's the case, then perhaps like Bartimaeus, when you hear the name Jesus, something jumps inside you. Something inside you says, that's what you've been missing. And the only step left in that case is to cry out for mercy and to declare Jesus Christ as the Redeemer. The Bible tells us that if we will call on the name of Jesus, that he will hear our cries, he will forgive us of our sins, and he will come to dwell with us eternally. Romans 10.9 talks about this, where it says, If you will declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you are here today and you find yourself in a situation such as that, do not allow this moment to pass. But take that step and confess your need, your belief, and your acceptance of Jesus Christ. And then come talk to me after the service to discuss that prayer. Or perhaps we've already made that profession of faith. Perhaps you already are a follower of Jesus, like like James was. How do you answer that question? No, James answered it by seeking after power and position. He saw Jesus as a way to gain blessings in his life. He saw it as a way that Jesus could could grant good favor upon him as he went about his life. And at times, people do this still even today, where we treat Jesus kind of like a genie in a bottle who will grant us our wishes. You know, we just rub the lamp and the genie pops out and we ask for money and popularity and fame and status. We want to be free from problems. We want to be free from conflict. There's nothing inherently wrong with wanting to have those things unless we seek them for the wrong reasons. Unless they come from the wrong motives, with the wrong intentions, and with the wrong goals. Because often when we seek those things for the wrong reasons, they actually get in our way. They get in the way of our relationship with Jesus. And what his true desire is for all who would choose to follow him. And his desire is for us to know, to be committed to, and then through word and deed, to go forth and share the good news of Jesus Christ with those whom we meet. The good news that God loved us all in our sent his one and only son who came to live to teach to set an example but then ultimately to die for our sins but that's where the story ends because then he was exalted to the highest highs as the epitome of servanthood for us to follow in our own lives see God calls us first to accept this for a truth for our own lives and to be transformed to be made new by it but then to go and to live that out before the world. He told his followers earlier, he said to seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. Seek that first. Make that your primary goal. Make that first things. And then all these other things will be given to you. God knows what you need. And I think he's willing to give you even more than you ever dreamed possible. But we need to seek him first. You see, the greatness that James was seeking would be realized. It could be realized if he would submit to servanthood first. I want to leave you with this thought and invite you to, to stand as we have our closing prayer. You see, we were all once beggars who were just sitting at the side of the road, metaphorically speaking, until Jesus came and ransomed us. You know, nothing has changed in the last 2,000 years that we still have a Savior who will stop for anyone who calls upon his name. And then he's going to ask you, what do you want me to do for you? How do you answer that question? And how you answer it will help to define, in part, who you see Jesus to be, the nature of your relationship, and how you'll walk this world with others as a follower of him. Heavenly Father, I pray for all of us here who are on this journey with you. Lord, that I know, I know most of us, most of the time, have good motives and intentions, and you are pleased and honored to call us sons and daughters. God, but also I know that each of us have these areas of our lives that we like to cling to and hold on to, that perhaps we just, we just want to keep and have you bless. God, I pray that whatever that might be in each of our lives, that we have the openness to release it, to allow you to help us to define it, even to redefine it. That we would understand the nature of our pursuits, that we would understand the nature of what it means to allow Jesus into all aspects of our lives. That we may fully understand followership. That we may fully understand servanthood. That we may fully understand what it means to be great in the kingdom of heaven. God, help us to walk in love and mercy and humility with one another in these days ahead. May you be honored by the way that we conduct our lives and our interaction with the Father. I pray this in Jesus' holy name.